So I said goodbye and I gave my high fives for the road. It was a Saturday morning after a fun, long weekend of leisure sports. I'm talking like horseshoes and cornhole and disc golf and things that aging people do as not to overexert. It used to be ultimate, now it's disc golf. We're slowing down. There were video games, there were philosophical conversations that went late into the night and card games that stretched into early mornings. And this annual tradition is like a confederation of about 15 college buds and it's known as Man's Weekend. It's taken on almost like an Olympic quality. Like every year, um, hosts make bids based on easiest travel and local lodgings and amenities and restaurants. And that year it was 2012 and it was Virginia Beach and it outpaced the field. Like needless to say, when a youth pastor hosts, you have pretty incredible access to games and places to play them, right? So we're in Virginia Beach and I headed out with quite a bit of unusual urgency. There was a hurricane coming behind me and I needed to race it through Tidewater, Virginia back to Durham if I was gonna make it home in time for, uh, to miss the hurricane, but also for my obligations to the pastor and a husband and at that time a new dad. I hadn't anticipated how early rain would make deep puddles and make this trek difficult. It seems my phone's GPS also didn't account for my Volkswagen Jetta's limits uh, to go through deep waters. About 45 minutes away from my friends, I had to keep making these constant estimations. Too deep, turn around, rerouting, those sorts of things over and over again. And then something at the bottom of one of these puddles eventually popped my tire. And I found myself waiting for AAA on the side of the foot of a bridge with Hurricane Sandy rapidly approaching. There were no other cars on the road. Occasionally a truck would pass and normally the guy would roll down his window and like yell something like, hey, you shouldn't be out here. Don't you know there's a hurricane coming? (laughs) And I sat there and I'm not really a panicking person, but panic started to set in. Like literally my car was swaying and blowing and I thought I might blow off the bridge. The winds were starting to pick up. And as panic began to set in, a few verses of a hymn came as a prayer. And like, it really did. This isn't just like a pastor's sermon illustration. Like this happened. (laughs) Uh, all, All I started to think of was how firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord. Like this was a rubber meets the road moment of trusting and asking for a firm foundation. Like my car was about to blow away. I was literally alone. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed. Dismayed is an understatement. I was running all of the scenarios in my head and there were so many more bad ones and uh, so much more likely than any good outcome. When through the deep waters, I call thee to go. It was the third verse. And geez, where did this song come from? How did I have it for a time like this? Isaiah 41, on which that psalm is, that uh, hymn is based, those are the words that I needed. 
when I didn't even know that I would need them. I hadn't packed those words for the trip. They're the story of God's people's reliance on God to protect and to answer and to make sense of a series of sufferings. And that the, all of that, um, that giant package was inscribed in these words that we'd sing every Sunday together. They, these words wore deep grooves into my spirit and I was able to call forth from them when all my other resources were gone. This was a, a moment of faith that was mustered not from my own faith ability, but from God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness that was taught to me and caught over years and years of showing up and being formed. These were, at that moment, for all intents and purposes, these were my last words. They could have really been my last words, but these were the last words that I had. They were the last words possible. They were the last words available. And because of God's faithfulness, they remain a testimony of God's saving power. I won't finish that story, but uh, the rest of it's pretty great too about how I got my tire changed and checked into a hotel without power. If you've never done that, I wouldn't recommend it. And then I ate uh, for dinner that night. They were, they were just emptying the freezer because they didn't have power. So I had a, a mostly melted pint of Ben and Jerry's for dinner that night in the dark. Um, none of this though is unique to my experience. We've all had some of these moments where we where we draw on God's resources and God's words when our resources and our words fail. Sure, some of us just fill in the space with a bunch of nervous jargon and words and things that we think might be appropriate or sound good or will help, but um, oftentimes uh, eventually we're met in silence at the end of our own words. I think that's the genius of music is that it seeps into our bones and um, has words, but sometimes the words are optional. Sometimes music doesn't need words or, or music's real power is even beyond the words. I, I think about um, how scandalized I was when I was younger that I learned about the ways like Paul McCartney wrote songs first on melody and then with words. So a song is beautiful and amazing as yesterday. The words don't even really matter. And the first draft of that was something like scrambled eggs, oh baby, how I love your legs. Uh, and so it was, it was all in the melody and then in the words. Music uh, carries more than it is in the same way we talked about poems doing that last week. I, th I think also on a more serious note of my friend, Bob, who had these late nights uh, in the hospital after his daughter's brain tumor and he was met and ministered to by God in wordless violin practice. And Bob's not first and foremost a violin player. He hadn't really spent much time with that instrument since he was much younger and neither had he really spent at that point a whole lot of time with God since he was much younger either. And God met him in those wordless late night violin practices in the ICU. I wonder if, if uh, the words that went with those melodies was something along the lines of God, listen to my cry, pay attention to my prayer, 
When my heart is weak, I cry out to you from the very ends of the earth. For Bob, there weren't really words, but God was present. God was near. God was there to be counted on, solid, nurturing. Please let me live in your tent forever, is what the psalmist says. Please let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. So much of our lives are spent just learning how to listen. How not just to hear, we all hear, but to listen to God To And we desire for God to listen to us. The poem that Meg read gets at some of this difficulty in all, in all of us. It at times feels like our languages don't equate with God, that our, our timelines are way off. God is often far too mysterious and too subtle and too patient for our liking, but don't mistake subtlety and patience for God being absent or disengaged. God's hearing works just fine. Sometimes it can be so maddening, though, to be with someone who hears you so well, but they don't feel like they need to act or do immediately out of insecurity. <laughs> the psalmist hopes for a God who can be security. Sometimes someone this solid can feel a little less than tender. But the psalmist also hopes in a God who is compassionate. And we're flooded with these images of mother birds, an eagle with protective talons. We've all met moms like that. Or a mother hen brooding over her little ones. The Christ symbolic pelican who is willing to pierce her own breast in order to feed her starving, helpless young. To be a refuge and rock higher than I, it's not just to be like a, a majestic mountain range out there, but it could also be the well-worn pebble of promise that lie at our feet in the river that sustains us. These are, this is the God who is, is big and holy and near and present. As we journey through Lent together, we have the chance to write some of our own lament psalms. The practice from this past Wednesday, and you can still do this, anyone can do this, whether or not you fancy yourself a writer, consider this a spiritual practice. Uh, it's, a, it's a prayer guide. And a sneaky secret about the Psalms, and I might get in trouble for this, is that while they are remarkable and they are beautiful and they are a sacred text, they are God's very word to us and for us, while they've influenced all, the, all these psalms and art and prayer and hymns, while they open us up to God's own heart and longing for our hearts to be open, they're also just words, quote unquote just, just words of desire. They're words that are familiar and words that are possible. On their face, they're actually not even necessarily all that fancy, these psalms. They make up such a big part of our Bible and they're not that fancy. They don't rhyme. So if you don't think you're a poet, that's okay. 
sometimes Psalms even use kind of like kitschy mnemonic devices, like acrostics, you know, those poems, ABCD that you wrote as a kid. A lot of Psalms actually are written as acrostics. And some of their language is super specific. Some of it is really kind of broad and repeated. In short, they are some of the best and most important poetry that has ever existed and they deserve to be in your heart and on your lips. And you can do it too. You can craft a prayer that is filled with lament and hope. You can become a psalmist. The exercise this week was take some time in God's presence to write out everything you are currently lamenting. What has been disappointing, upsetting, or devastating for you? Just write it out like it could be a bulleted list. This is a key strategy for any aspiring psalmist. Open up your heart to God. Lay out what is wrong. Do this when you're mad. Do this when you're scared. Do this when you're desperate. Do this when you have some distance from the thing and can think with a clear head. Do this when you're too close and too emotional and too spent. You have already put some language around it. Even if it's colorful language, write it down. This is a valuable first step. This is something you can see in almost any Psalm and especially in a Psalm of lament. So in the season of Lent, the season of pent up emotion and energy and sorrow, don't be afraid to open the floodgates. While we might not, or the people closest to us might not have the resources or capacity to field all of these things, God does, God hears. God cares. You will never overwhelm or surprise God. You will never overwhelm or surprise God with any complaints or disappointment or fear or anxiety or desolation. And you don't need to protect God from all of these things. Idols need protection. Like idols are like trophies that sit on a case and, and you put them on a high shelf so they don't get knocked over by the kids who are throwing stuff, right? But the living God, the maker of heaven and earth who has been shown to us in the face of Jesus can handle all of these things. On the cross, Jesus has handled all of these things. So little kind of sidebar here. Uh, because I think it's important. Um, whenever this is like strategy to reading Psalms well and not in a, um, a damaging way. Like I, I saw this, this is a sidebar of a sidebar. I saw this uh, like silly meme that was like a Valentine's Day that said, hey girl, can you be my sacred text so that I can uh, misinterpret you for my own advantage or whatever like that. And so this is like how not to do that, right? Um, <clears throat> always when you are reading a psalm or a song with a measure of sorrow or intensity or cry for help, understand that there is always the text and the context and the subtext, right? 
So we often read it like the surface level and we just read the words of the text, words like Justin read. These words are full of comfort and they inspire, but let's not forget that they belong to a context. First, the context of God's people, Israel. Our translations help us not to forget this. They provide little headings like a Psalm of David that place them on someone's lips and in a certain time with certain things happening that are sometimes far away from us. Uh, These are not free floating words then of comfort or inspiration, but they are deeply embedded texts in the life of a worshiping community that has been called out from among the nations and blessed to be a blessing for many. This means that when these words over time and by grace begin to become our words, that this happens in a way that joins us to what God has been doing for a long time. We tap into a story and we're grafted into a family that has learned to rely on God's salvation. We're not the first ones who are reading this. We're not making this stuff up. As ones who are in Christ, we take these, we, we like take on these words as Christ's own words. We see this in Jesus's life. Jesus is, quote, the stone the builders rejected who has become the chief cornerstone. From the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He commits his spirit into God's hands. All of these are words from the psalmist that pour forth from the lips of Jesus. Because these words have a Jewish context, because they have a Christ context, and Christ was, of course, Jewish, our lives might become a new context for them to take up new meaning and vitality amongst our neighborhoods and for our neighbors. So that's text and that's context. Lastly, there's this persistent subtext. It's like unseen subterranean iceberg mass. We only see like 10% and there's 90% of the mass underwater where our eyes can't see. These cries of lament come from that place, the margins, not the visible center. Even David's cries, remember King David? come from the relative obscurity and fragility of a small and embattled nation pressed in upon all sides, not the burgeoning empire of uh, his son, Solomon. Like Solomon gives us all these wise pithy sayings in Proverbs. David gives us Psalms. Like this is, this is a key difference between the voice of of, uh, those who have made it and those who are struggling for their life. This can sometimes, this whole subtext piece can kind of change the whole meaning of how we hear things, akin to how we hear jazz music or black spirituals. For instance, like a psalm, this is like a bugaboo psalm for me or has been uh, a song, um, hymn, I'll Fly Away. Like in the hands of Southern white church, It becomes like an anthem for dispensationalist by-and-by theology. It's so heavenly-minded, it's no earthly good. To sing I'll Fly Away in this key is to to maybe reify hopes and theologies that have been dangerous 
for and that have contributed to the degradation of creation. After all, why would you care for a planet that the whole point is to leave it? And, and also like whose destruction might actually speed up that process. Not to mention this soul-saving theology doesn't often translate to gospel-worthy lives of discipleship, of stability that stick in and do the hard things here and now so that God's kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven. But then when the same song, the same words, the same melodies get sung from a hush harbor, a group of enslaved believers just up on Moorhead Hill, First Calvary. Uh, it's a beautiful big brick building, but it sprung from a hush harbor that was um, a secretive uh, Christian meeting um, away from the slaveholding churches in its own group of believers. When a hush harbor sings, I'll fly away, it takes on a new subtext that some glad morning when this life is over will be a time of God's deliverance. Like the Israelites from Egypt, from the harsh and unbearable injustice of being owned. This will be a day of unveiling and unmasking the powers and principalities who have been big phonies this whole time, claiming for themselves what only God can claim. A great reversal. Do you see the difference here? Same song, different subtext. Many have written about this well, like James Cone or Howard Thurman wrote uh, a book called Deep River. Diedrich Bonhoeffer describes his own conversion experience in the worship community at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. He went in there a double PhD in theology, and he says, I became a Christian by singing in Harlem and through the lives he encountered teaching Sunday school. So what a friend we have in Jesus can be a sweet thought that looks good embroidered on a potholder, but it can also be a subversive lifeline of truth for someone for whom the whole society is designed to put their backs against the wall and to make them friendless. To have a friend in Jesus matters. Dante Stewart says, Jesus' saving power was not only seen as bringing slave souls to God, but he is seen as a present friend who cared for the condition of their bodies. They knew they could always find that, quote, Jesus is our friend. He'll keep us to the end. And a little talk with Jesus makes it right. Out of this theology of God, Thurman concluded that the slaves knew that, quote, God would make it right, make it all right. So we learn the vocabulary of these Psalms and we learn the history and we learn the subtext beneath them so that we might move towards Jesus. We might move towards justice. And then we, in our movement towards Jesus through justice, might discover that God is already there. God is already listening. God is already saving us. Because these words are first and foremost Jesus's words, and they can become our words too. We have them spoken over us 
long before we can muster the words. And even when we can't muster the words, the spirit gathers what we have and pulls them out of us and groans too, too deep for sighing. These are groans with the whole of the groaning creation lurching towards renewal. So that your last words, my last words, our last words, and even the ones after that might be words that God hears and answers. To close, I can't help but think of another song that was meaningful. Um, a song I heard several years ago at a vigil here in Durham put on by the Religious Coalition for a Nonviolent Durham. Unfortunately, they have this annual event that helps remember and lament the loss of life in our city from gun violence. And unfortunately, that is a yearly thing and keeps on going and sometimes even grows in size and scope. After hearing the cries of mothers and pastors and friends and neighbors about their lost ones to senseless and like demonic violence, we sang the soothing, there is a balm in Gilead. Again, a song with a deep, a song with a deep context. And then we closed with this simple song that might sum up the whole goal of our lives. It was, it was a song called, if you don't know what to say, just say Jesus. If you don't know what to say, just say Jesus. Jesus, our last word, and the word after that. Will you all pray with me? Jesus, when we don't know what to say, be the word on our lips. And then give us other words to see and call out injustice and suffering to notice the suffering of those around us and especially the suffering of those who aren't like us give us words to call out to you god because we trust you we know you hear us when our hearts are weary and overwhelmed. Your heart is um, big and strong enough to carry us. Help us come to you with these desires, with these hurts. We give you thanks and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.